Hello, welcome to this episode of Sabbath School from Home. It's a slightly reduced uh, podcast crew today. My name's Cameron. And I'm Luke. And Lachlan may join us soon. He called me just before recording to say that he's he's been held up. So he might join in as we go. Uh, he has nonetheless directed the course for our discussion because he recommended to me that we look at Psalm 121. And it's a great psalm, especially in the context of uh, this week's topic, which is about the Lord who hears and delivers. Luke, do you want to read the first half and I'll read the second half of the psalm? I can certainly do that. It's not a long one and it's eight verses, so we can divide it into very comfortably. Um, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. Who who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, who who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He'll keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Hmm. Okay, well, we should um, go over Luke some of our pre-recording discussion because we, Luke, Luke and I were a little unsure how to proceed with this, as that lengthy pause signifies. Um, on the one hand, Luke, uh, the experience that's described here and the picture it paints of God's involvement seems mm. definitely to be the case in some people's lived experience. And it seems not to be the case, or at least not as obviously to be the case, in some other people's lived experience. Yes, and I mean, to, to get to it quite directly, um, how do you reconcile this, this statement of incredible uh, confidence and trust with the reality that for many people, including many avowed, dedicated Christians, um, they are not kept from harm. Well, of course, David wasn't, assuming David is the psalmist here. So, well, um, and 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 that that's that's a very good point, and it just, it just begs the question: somebody who suffered a great deal of harm in their life, uh, some of it self-inflicted, <laughs> for sure. Um, how do they write? The Lord will keep you from all harm. Yeah, when when it wasn't true or it didn't appear to be true and i'm not um i'm not suggesting that the the i disagree with the psalm i just don't understand it i think i think one helpful um i'm distracted luke because i'm looking up a cs lewis quote um i think i think one of the things we have to remember is that uh, no psalm on its own uh, pretends to describe all of human experience mm. so you know, if the book of Psalms was full only of Psalms in the same sort of tone and tenor of Psalms 121, we would say that the author or authors were out of touch. But of course, it's mm. it's not. The authors who the authors who wrote this psalm are, are well acquainted with personal angst and pain and suffering. Yes, they absolutely must have been. Um, and you mentioned our pre-recording discussion. One of the things we touched on. Um, is is the uh, nature of infant mortality, yeah. which up until very very recently in human history was extremely high, um, and and 
continues to go down, particularly for things like like premature births, where, and I know this because um, a, a relative of my generation died very young after being born premature. And then when I was having my own child um, back in 2017, when my wife was pregnant, yeah. I, I learned all about uh, the the um, stages of development of a, of a fetus yeah. um, and at what point it could survive. And I discovered that it is now very common for, for babies to survive um, after having been born much earlier than my relative was. Yeah, right. And that is because of the recent advances. Uh, I, I'm saying this because I think a lot of people probably don't know it. If you're if you're around our age, you probably work under the assumption that, aside from some very specific things like like cancer treatments, um, the standard of, of medicine has has been fairly static. But mm. uh, o- over the last thirty years, well, it hasn't. The the improvements are constantly ongoing, and the reality is that if if my relative had been born this year he probably would have survived. Whereas even just 30 years ago, 35, 40 years ago, he, he, he didn't. Um, you go back 140 years ago, and infant mortality was extremely high relative. Now you go back to the time of the psalmist, um, and more children would have died as infants than survived by far. Yeah. The, the, the proportion of children that survived to adulthood was tiny, and we know this because we know what the proportion of children who survive to adulthood in non-industrialized societies is, because yeah. some have still existed in modern eras. Um, one of the one of the um, first projects that I was involved in with Adra yeah. was in training um, uh, remote communities, traditional healers mm. in in some fairly basic practices of neonatal care. Mm. So caring for newborns and what, what you need to do in the first minutes and hours and, and days of their life um, to give them the best chance of, of survival through to a healthy childhood. Mm. Um, and that was something that was having a measurable impact on infant mortality rates in in those rural and remote communities mm. in Central Asia. Mm. So you look at infant mortality and you go, how? How is that keeping the child from harm? How is, you know, to have no real chance at life? How is that keeping the parents from harm? To have to watch their children suffer and die and mm. be unable to do anything about it. How is... And, and the, the psalmist would have had this experience. Everybody yeah. in their society would have had the experience. Yeah. And how do you how do you reconcile it? Yes. And Yeah, yeah exactly like. Yeah, I, I think it it's it's evidently complicated and, and we would do it the psalmist certainly a disservice yeah. to just gloss over it. Yes. Well uh one of the um one of the points that I re- remember picking up in a Philip Yancey book, and I cannot remember which one, but he made the observation that a lot of the passages that people turn to as being the safe, easy, comfortable passages are themselves quite complicated. So, for instance, um, uh, not one sparrow falls 
without the father knowing. Yes, but the, mm. the sparrows still fall. Yes, and if he knows about it, it why why doesn't he do anything? <laughs> in in that book, Yancey um, makes a distinction. He says that at least, uh, as I understand it, in the original language, in at least one of the tellings of that statement, it says, um, instead of saying not one sparrow falls um, apart from the will of the father, it says uh, not one sparrow falls apart from the father. So... Uh, God does not, in his, uh, with with the sort of inference that Philip Yancey pulled out, was that God doesn't distance Himself from our suffering. Our suffering is His suffering. You know, He's mm. He's right there, um, and He does in fact hear our pain. In fact, He feels our pain. And you know, were it not for the incarnation and death and resurrection of Christ, um, I I would find it hard sometimes to reconcile God's professed character of love and involvement with the world around um when you look at the person of christ and you say well actually he um he chose willingly to participate in our pain and suffering to bring about a good resolution for to bring him as much good as he could you know he he carried Mm. that cost that does moderate things a little bit um the c.s lewis quote that i look for which i can't find which i'm frustrated goes something along the lines of thus i'm pretty sure it's from an essay called the efficacy of prayer um he said if against any hopes you pray something and it is answered you mustn't suppose that that's because of any virtue on your side um if we were stronger we might be less tenderly treated if we were braver, we might be sent to defend a far more desperate outpost in the great battle. Um, and then he said, <laughs> and don't forget that um, the person on earth who was closest to God in character was most neglected and ignored at his greatest hour of need in Gethsemane. And then, which, which, and yeah. then, he said, then he said, there is a mystery in this, which even if I had the capacity, I would not have the courage to fathom. Hmm. Well, I I feel like I'm in good company if if I feel the same way about this mystery that C.S. Lewis does. Yeah. Um, there is another sense, though, Luke, and this is in this is the pie in the sky sort of get out of jail free card that's often used to make everything all right again, uh, which is that um, we live in a temporary. This world's but a stepping stone greater and bigger and better things um and i know this is a theme that ken um so i'll speak for him seeing as he's not in the recording uh, but he said to me before he said you know if, if he didn't have a picture of the resurrection then he would not be able to find any sort of peace with the pain and suffering in the world mm. uh so i don't know when well see but that that even that begs the question because the psalmist did not have any concept of the resurrection either. No, I know. Well, see, I'm not sure that I agree with Ken because I think that there is something a lot worse than physical pain and there is something that's even worse than loneliness. And I think loneliness is worse than physical pain. Mm. Um, And there's something even worse than despair, although it's closely linked to it, and that is any sense of meaninglessness, futility. Um, That's what my mind sort of recoils from. And when Lewis says, um, you know, we may be sent to defend a far greater outpost, there is a material comfort to me gained in saying 
I'm in the middle of pain and suffering, and I have a God who hears. I wish he intervened more often, um, but nonetheless, he has invited me to be an agent in the situation to either increase its meaning for good or increase its meaning for ill. Mm. Um, in the sense that I have something to do. And that that brings, um, doesn't lessen the pain, um, but um, a sense of meaning and purpose is, I think, much more important than physical comfort. Oh, that's that's certainly true. Even then, um, perhaps physical health. Mm. Luke, I want to well, go through the the psalm sort of, uh, and let's see if we can tease apart the bits that we are most mm. comfortable with and the bits that we perhaps are well, uncomfortable with. Just just before we do that, Cam, um, we we have been struggling with this challenging mystery um, between the two of us, but Locke is here now, so I, oh. I suggest we get him to solve it for us, and then we can move oh, on to the individual it's wonderful. Like, line-by-line analysis. Like we're looking at Psalms 121, and we've looked a little bit, particularly at the line, um, about God keeping us from all evil, mm. and he will keep our life in the light of you know large-scale and small-scale suffering, infant mortality, um, can you solve any of these for us? Right. So it's a, it's a nice light-hearted one today, and we're going. <laughs> yeah. No. Um. Really big issues. I joined and, and have just been listening to see if I could work out from context. Um. What you were talking about. I agree with you, Cam, about the importance of meaning. Um. I am not. I. I, I oscillate backwards and forwards on how much I agree with the comment that you quoted from Ken. Um, yeah. On the one hand, whenever I read in the New Testament the passage where Paul says, um, you know, if if not for the resurrection, then we're all just just foolishness. Yeah. I I my instinct is to actually rebut that and say, but hang on a minute. It seems at least one plausible argument for following God in the way of Jesus is that it actually makes this life better. And I and I find myself sympathising with Paddleglum in the silver chair of the Narnia series, yeah. who ends up shaking himself out of a little bit of an enchantment by saying, "Well, hang on. Even if the sun isn't real, even if Aslan isn't real, I'd rather life will be better yeah. living as if they are real than admitting that they're not." So there's there's that element, and mm. and yet and yet I I just return to the specifics of how you quoted Ken. Um, it's not, it's not, uh, if I, if I understood the wording right, it's not just that the resurrection sort of gives meaning to Christianity, but that without the resurrection, it's very, very difficult to make sense of the suffering. There is a real sense here, Locke, and Luke, you were there too. This is great. Um, do you remember our bushwalk down Lady Northcote's Canyon? <laughs> yes, regularly. So, I was I was recalling it just a few weeks ago when I was uh, climbing to the summit of Kosciuszko and I looked across the valley to Mount Townend. Yes. Um, yeah. Did the hairs on the back of your neck raise? <laughs> yeah. I, so we should give our listeners a brief sort of highlights. One of the highlights was I think the idea was conceived among us or did it come from Tim Pope and the Abart group at Avondale? I think I think Tim Pope was was central to it, but... 
But the actual origins I, I of the I think it, it came from an emissary of, of hell. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. right. <laughs> However the plan originated, it it proved not to have been quite as yeah. adequately thought through as, as we might in, have hoped. In, including um, a, a few particular details. One of them was that a large number of people joined the party, which turned out to be a fairly significant factor in in the general experience. Yeah, um, some of them with, with very little actual hiking experience. Mm, yes. And, and and the idea was we were going to climb up past Kosciuszko and then go down Lady Northcote's Canyon to a... Which is a stream which down the steep Back valley. of Mount Townsend? Yeah. The north side? Yeah. And to see... Um, to, and then we're going to stay at the Opera House Hut, which is so-called... Or was so-called, because I think it's been burnt out now, um, because it cost the same per square metre to build as the Opera House did. And then we were going to do a bit of bush bashing over a ridge and cut back to somewhere near the cars. And um, the, it went very well as far as the first night. We camped somewhere between Kosciuszko and Mount Townsend and all, all was good with the world. Mm. And um, then we set off. My, my highlight of the next day was jumping off a rock onto some what I thought was probably 10 centimetres of grass and it was actually closer to... A half a meter or a meter so it was just a much longer and i landed with my knees locked and to this day when i'm bushwalking i get um an aggravated knee on about the third day and it's the left knee and it's happened ever since that jolly bushwalk um so that happened for me somewhere near the start and slowed me down considerably from memory uh, but i was not alone yeah that's um, there was that's... a fair bit of clambering up and down waterfalls and slippery rocks lots of slippery rocks yeah, and about and two rain. o'clock in the afternoon, and rain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That slowed us down a bit too. And then uh, somewhere mid afternoon, my memory was we decided to cut a curve off the river by by going up over a spur. Yeah, we did give that a try. <laughs> was it successful? Um, I I'm trying to recall whether I, I I believe clothes were torn in the process by the dense vegetation. Yeah. I don't think it was that hike. Um, that totally undid your the, the stitching on your trousers. Like, I think that was another one. But there, I remember that that our detour up from the from the river wasn't a very successful one. I can say with confidence no. it didn't increase our average speed. My <laughs> memory was of clambering up the sides of these jolly snowy mountain ravine with undergrowth that was growing out horizontally. Mm. Bushes where all the stems were horizontal. It was about mm. a forty five degree slope, and then we um uh. Uh, by about eight o'clock at night or seven o'clock at night, it was winter. No, it was it was cold, but I don't think it was winter. It, I don't think it was winter, but it was. Um, I have a feeling it might have been autumn. I think it might have yes. been autumn because it certainly wasn't the the summer length of day from my memory. And um, it, it got dark enough. There were first of all, it got um, dark enough that we insisted that everyone in the party, and this is where having a large party was bad because it slowed us all down. Um, big parties always move slower than small parties. And this particular, and I wasn't by any means, you know, the only slow person there, but I was certainly one of them um, with my sore knee. And uh, it was insisted that we just had to stop trying to keep our feet dry and just walk down the stream. So we were walking down the stream. And then it got so dark we thought we might miss the hut, even if we were to walk straight past it. And we arrived at what could be euphemistically described as an island. Yeah. It was a rock. <laughs> it, was, it was a few rocks 
and the stream was on either side of it and the banks on each side of the stream were at least 45 degrees yeah the main the main appeal of this thing that you've called an island was that it was moderately flat it looked as if it was been about yes. the only spot where we could perhaps tent for the night yeah and when i say tent um there was you know, twice as many tents as could fit on the spot. But my memory was that the tent inners were put up and then the flies were just laced to each other. Um, it, there wasn't much opportunity to peg them down. Um, it was decided that although we weren't meant to light fires, except in case of emergency, it would be prudent to light a fire to possibly preempt any emergency in terms of the temperature. It was pretty cold. And uh, just as the fire, after considerable amount of effort, um, with damp wood, was starting to gain a hold. I remember standing near it and the the fire um, disappeared. It didn't go out. Yeah. It just wasn't there anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. And there was a hole and a little puff of steam and we looked down the hole and discovered that our island, in inverted commas, was a collection of boulders which not only had the stream flowing either side of but also underneath of. That's right. And... Our fire had burnt through the undergrowth and that was one of the dark, that coupled with waking up the next morning and opening my eyes and seeing my boots just outside the tent filled to the top with water uh. like a cup. <laughs> um, where yeah. this is relevant is that um, Kelly, do you remember Kelly was on that? Mm. Arc? She vowed and declared that she was never going to ever remember this bushwalk in positive light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people would say, oh, no, we're nearly there. You'll, you'll enjoy it when we're done. You know, we'll look back and we'll laugh about it. No, she was never going to laugh about this. This She was very adamant. Um, our slight shortcut through the Snowy Hydro Tunnels, which you're not meant to do. Mm. Um, I still, anyway. every now and again, ponder that. And, and not quite the cold chills, but I, I genuinely feel quite stressed <laughs> in yeah. retrospect. <laughs> yeah. Um, walking through a tunnel for two k's in the dark in water up to your knees and just hoping that there's no flash flooding. Um, anyway, um, and then and then right at the end, we met some policemen in a ute who were not looking for us. They were looking for other people, but they gave, I think, some of us a lift and mm. that was good. And then uh, my memory of stopping on the way home um, to get snatch a bit of food and climbing out of the car was the sorest I've ever been. That where this story becomes relevant is that a short number of weeks later, um, Kelly, the girl in question, was doing prep teaching at the school where I was a student, and I happened to be in one of her classes, and enjoyed with some uh, surprise a very vivid retelling of this experience to the students, um, given with obvious enjoyment. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and this this really gets back to the issue of meaning. Um, a good friend of mine who's a, a counsellor and spent a lot of time counselling children said um, to me once, it is never too late for a happy childhood. Mm. Um, and that's someone speaking who has dealt with and counselled and helped the most um, you know, disintegrated lives. Mm. Um, but what an experience means is does change what what it means can grow and develop and can be healed and can can change so um perhaps the sentiment of psalms 121 is actually the transcendent truth 
Yeah, I, I think there's value in that. I certainly can't um, provide a, a quick and simple answer. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He'll watch over your life. That's what the New Living Translation renders verse 7. Um, very clearly, empirically, there are people who are not kept from all, all harm. I mean, there are people that have um, tremendous harm. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just um, extremely difficult to work that out in any way, shape or form. Um, and, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely yeah. sure that, the, that this um, is, is really attempting to, to be honest. Um, yeah. Well, this, can, I, can I make an attempt to, because I'm actually on the side of the psalmist here, um, and it's another C.S. Lewis quote. When he was talking about prayer, and it's a different essay on prayer, and I am stuck in a room without my C.S. Lewis reference material, so I can't find it. Um, uh, he talks about some of the promises that are made about prayer. You know, if you pray in my name, what you pray for will be done. He said, um, don't think you can excuse this problem by just saying, oh, it's exaggeration or it's, it's a hyperbole or hyperbole. Mm, hyperbole, I think. Hyperbole. Um, can I add in something here that we can cut out in the edit? Yeah. Um, ellipsis, parable, and hyperbole have <laughs> the basis in ellipse, parabola, and hyperbola, and they are all cross-sections of a cone. Mm. And we've, we've adopted them grammatically. Yeah. Anyway. They belong to the same family of mathematical shapes. And an ellipse is Mm. when you chop it at a small angle and a parabola is when you chop it at an angle parallel to the side and a hyperbola is when you chop it at an angle steeper than the side. And an ellipsis is where you leave something out. So it's a small, small, a parable is to say it how it is and hyperbole is to exaggerate it. Mm. So there's a scale in the same direction. Anyway, I'm distracted. Um, C.S. Lewis was talking about um, hyperbole. So don't think you can excuse, brush it off as hyperbole. He said, um, hyperbole is a valid literary device. By saying something great, which is not true, you signify something great, which is true. Mm. So when you say... um, I had the best day ever. I had the best day ever. Or it's raining cats and dogs. Or a biblical phrase, I've walked from Dan to Beersheba. Mm. They're at opposite ends of Israel. It, it doesn't mean you've literally... Or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What what sort of greater... Mm. Yeah. So when, when, you, when you use... And maybe when you say, the Lord will keep you from evil, he'll keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So maybe it's not literally true. But that doesn't mean you eliminate it. Mm. The psalmist is saying something... The, the literal words are mm. statements of something large and significant, which is not true, but they signify something large and significant, which is true. Right. And the power of that observation is that as soon as you try and attempt to articulate it as being literally true or universally true, it would be disprovable by counterexample, you know, on, on just the raw logic. Have you ever encountered the story of a person who was not kept from harm? Yes. Well, then that, that becomes the, the simplest, you know, this becomes the, the weakest tower that can topple with the very simplest anecdote. However, yeah. your observation that you've just explained says the existence of counterexamples does not in fact attack 
the fundamental great truth that this is saying. The truth is strong enough that, yes, yeah. in our world, we encounter some counterexamples. We, we observe anecdotes that don't seem to fit this. Yeah. But the actual truth that's being communicated, it's been exaggerated here into a form that would be negated quite easily. But the yeah. actual truth is not so easily negated or refuted. No. And, and the psalmist himself had had enough troubles mm. to, to know and and we are allowed to say when you read something literally that means according to the literary devices it's using like li- mm. literally i mean the way you read a, a cookbook literally is different to the way you read a phone book literally yeah um they mm. both have words followed by numbers but they um they are read literally differently so so uh, here's here's a question for you uh, given um, human's tendency for, and this is empirically evident in my own life, um, tendency for self-centeredness. Hmm. Um, how much more, just gut feeling, do you think evil there would be in the world were God not at work? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. Were there, you know, if there were not people like, and some of the people came to st- sticky ends, like Bonhoeffer, um, you know, dying under the Nazi regime, but he was an agent for good mm. or or Anne Frank well okay so she had an unhappy ending but think of what that represented and think of the times where God's spirit moving in that way has been in more in oh, I was going to say more successful I don't like that that phrase but when when you think of people acting under um, God's direction and God's spirit and God's spirit working independently um, would it be fair to say that the difficulties we've identified notwithstanding, we think that God has achieved great things in the prevention of evil and the alleviation of suffering and the healing of hurts. Yeah, I mean, I guess that come that brings faith into it to some extent. But yeah, uh, my the best answer I can think of is, of course, another aspect from Narnia, where Aslan says you're, you're not told what would have happened yeah yeah mm. it it is a privilege to be able to ponder the mystery i think mm. yeah quite quite generally uh genuinely i mean yeah your both of your comments spark interesting questions <laughs> um but i i fear that it would be unwise to raise them now uh where yeah. the remaining time for conversation would not do them in any way justice yeah so I'll just hold them in my head and yeah. we can hopefully have another opportunity to revisit. I mean, but even internally within the psalm, the fact that it begins with a statement that he needs help. Mm. He doesn't say, God, wow, everything's awesome all the time. Um, what, what is it in the Lego movie? Um, everything is awesome. Yeah. Is that how it goes? Mm. That's, that's how the, um, the, the song? Key, thong, key song goes, yeah. Yeah. And um, it's not awesome, but everyone is singing about how everything is awesome. Because it all looks awesome. Uh, the, this, the psalmist is not singing that song. He's saying, well, I, I need help, but I'm, I'm turning to God for it. And uh, where else could we go? Mm. There's, a, there's a very deep theme of constancy. Um, and again, I joined a few um, moments late, so you may have already commented on some of this stuff. But it's, it's fascinating that in verse 3 and 4, the metaphor is the watcher that does not sleep. Um and then in verse 6, it's 
they won't be harmed by day or by night. So again, it's constant. There's no break from this. Those two, those two elements of the metaphors play together. Yeah. It's beautiful language. Um, even translated, you know, as I don't remember where I heard it, but you know, the mark of both a great poem and a great translation, and you need both, is that it can be beautiful in a different language. Mm. Although it's always said of poetry that um, it it can never be as good mm. um, in in a different language. Um, because a different language really means it a, a different culture, a different way of thinking. Um, I've made this comment on the podcast before, but it would be great to have a translation of the Bible to provide insight into the sorts of problems that translators have to face. And um, we have the English Standard Version. Uh, it would be great to have the English um, non-standard version where the translators <laughs> choose the least likely but plausible or possible interpretation of every <laughs> every phrase, just so that you can, um, uh, so that you can sort of get a sense of how it is. Uh, this psalm, though, is a favourite of mine, and I happen to be at a, a point of some crisis um, in my family at the moment, and the fact that I am in the middle of uh, considerable distress. Um, I do not, just empirically, I do not find that this psalm speaks to me any less for the fact that it mm. it seems to, you know, it wouldn't do as a very good encyclopedia entry article on pain and suffering or the human condition or, um, but that doesn't seem to bother me too much just at present. Mm. Maybe that's why it's there. Yeah. Because it's useful for people who are suffering. Yeah. I, you know, when, when particularly Adventists talk about the Bible being from God, the assumption, the inference, what have you, is that it's, it's there to teach us doctrine. Mm. But, you know, uh, things can have other purposes. Mm. And one of them can be to comfort and encourage. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, the, the when we talk about the good news, the focus is always on the the, the idea that it's news. Mm. And maybe we should focus a bit more on the idea that it's good. Mm. It's not just that David himself experienced suffering, though. It's that he, um, I guess, not always, not with Uriah the Hittite, but generally um, saw it as his job as God's representative to behave in the way that he here ascribes to God. So he did keep people from evil, people like Saul who were out to kill him. And, you know, the man who mocked him as he was escaping his rebel son, who David also intervened actively to try and save. Um, so uh, there's also this uh, dimension, um, is that in as much as we aspire to follow God, uh, this psalm does give us a mandate to keep other people from evil mm. and to stay vigilant. Yes, now that's an interesting reading of it. What if it's instructions? You know, it's it's written. It's written. I mean, so I'm just I'm just thinking because, I mean, it's it's it, it's very clearly about God and what God does. But if if you read it in that mindset that I am I am supposed to live according to this character, hmm. um, 
if if you have a, a king, someone in a position of power who reads it with the mindset or writes it with the mindset that I live according to this character, then it will directly flow into their, your, my actions and how I treat other people. Hmm. Well, there's a lot of mystery. Um, enough mystery that um, we could talk for a long time. We shan't, though, because at this particular time of recording, I'm looking at my watch and it being now past half past nine, I'm thinking I'll head off to bed. Um, so we might have to draw a line on the discussion there. I'm sure there's many more ideas and lots of directions and different ways to read this psalm and um, insights into the fact, I mean, we we do believe God hears us. We do mm. believe our God is a God who delivers. And exactly how that plays out in our lives um, may be complicated. Um, but part of faith seems to be keeping an eye on or, or clinging to this picture of God. And I'm sure that in the lives of our listeners, this has played out in different ways. And uh, if you have any thoughts or insights or experiences you'd like us to share on the podcast, you can email them to us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And uh, please share this podcast with anyone who you feel would, would benefit and join us again next week. <laughs>